In the past few years, the debate has grown louder and more intense over capitalism's role in our society. Some executives fear the challenges of changing the exclusive purpose of business from profits for shareholders to now include having a positive social impact, while others have successfully embraced it. Today, our guest is Bob Chapman, chairman and CEO of Barry Waymiller, a $3 billion global manufacturing business with about 12,000 employees that measure success by the way they touch the lives of people. Bob has demonstrated that taking a people-centric approach where his employees feel valued, cared for, and are central to the company's core purpose actually results in consistently higher financial returns. He is co-author of Everybody Matters, The Extraordinary Power of Caring for People Like Family, and has been a guest speaker at TED conferences, Harvard Business School, Washington University, and many more. Companies like Shell Oil, the San Francisco 49ers, and American Airlines have sent executives for training at Bob's Leadership Institute. He's with us today to discuss his experiences in leading with a higher purpose. Bob, welcome to our podcast series. I appreciate the opportunity, John, to be here, and I appreciate New York Tech giving me this opportunity to share this message. We're glad to have you. And before we jump into your leadership principles, Let's give our listeners a little bit of a background, and maybe we can start, and I'm enamored with the fact that you got a traditional business education, and yet you've come up with sort of a very much a non-traditional way of leading and managing people. I'm going to start by saying it's not a traditional way. It's not managing people, because one of the challenges we have in business is the words we use. You can't manage anybody. Mm-hmm. You can only inspire, coach, mentor lead people. So you're right. The greatest compliment, you know, as you said, I have a very traditional public education, not much focus, and decided to be an accountant for some reason. I have no idea why. <laughs> and joined Price Waterhouse after an MBA at Michigan. So had a good job at Price Waterhouse, was invited in to join our family business that I'd never even considered working for. But my dad all of a sudden saw a language uh, common with me in terms of we can now talk business. So in 1969, he invited me into the company, and my job was somebody he could trust. That was my title. So I began very traditional business, a 100-year-old family company that was struggling. And what I would say to your listeners is in my journey I'm going to talk about, my greatest challenges became my greatest opportunity for growth, Okay. And if I look back on my career, it is how I dealt with the challenges and what I learned from those that shaped the company we have today. 100-year-old capital goods equipment company serving the brewing and soft drink industry and struggling, very small, old, traditional company that struggled because its technology had become outdated, lost out to foreign competitors, and it really didn't have much of a future. That's where I began my journey. You pick up something where it's struggling, and struggling companies normally we talk about in terms of a turnaround. So now you've got to grasp that, and I understand you and I had spoken earlier that your dad had passed away, and the reins of the company were given to you, and you had to make the best of it. It was pretty shocking for me, my dad, to die suddenly because we were working well together. And so the combination of the shock of my dad passing away and the first person I met after my dad died was our bankers who pulled our line of credit. So that's the way I began my career. I grabbed a hold of this business with both hands, and I turned it around on a dime. It had the most profitable year in its history my first year running the company. That's the good news and the bad news. The problem at age 30 is I became overconfident Mm. because I really now had paid off the debt, and I decided to bring in new growth initiatives. 
all organic. I went and got into solar energy, got into filling systems, and everything looked amazing. And my bankers were supporting my growth. They loved our company. And I grew from 18 to 72 million in four years. But each one about 1983 started having problems. Each one, each one of those growth initiatives ran into significant challenges all at the same time. We had to write off a bunch of inventory. We had to provide for warranty. And my bankers who supported my growth suddenly pulled on me again. And so I had the second, in this case, more traumatic, more violent, because I lived day to day on cash. I learned more in those nine months than I had ever learned in my life. Because when you do not have cash, you have to be creative. We finally got refinanced in the fall of 84. And what I decided was I was proud of our history, but our history didn't give us a future. And I said to my team, we need to start doing acquisitions. So I began with no money. I was virtually broke, but I felt I had to do acquisitions to get us in the markets that would give us a better future. And my finance team said to me, Bob, great idea. We only have one problem. They said, we have no money, Bob. Do you understand that? I said, Unencumbered by the fact that I had no money, kind of like shopping without a wallet. Right. <laughs> I started acquiring companies, okay, in 1984, 1985. I probably got five or six companies. What do you buy when you have no money? You buy things nobody else wants. But I put them together with intensity. And by 1987, again, still struggling with our bankers, an idea surfaced we could spin off the acquisitions on the London Stock Exchange and pay off our debt and have the historic company back again, but no debt. That seemed like a dream. And in May of 1987, we spun off the acquisitions, and it was a phenomenal success. And now I started again in 1990 with the same historic business, but now I had cash and I had experience. So it was sort of reborn in 1990, and I think you, yeah. you had mentioned to me that the IPO that you did was actually well oversubscribed. Well, we were trying to raise... $28 million of cash to buy 70% of the company and people sent in $1.1 billion of cash to buy stock in this company. And the interest at that time was in the 20% range. Prime was way up there. We made more money on the $1.1 billion on deposit with our brokers than the IPO cost us. I mean, Harvard wrote a case study because they couldn't believe we bought these unwanted small companies, put them together intensely, and had a dramatically successful IPO. So that kind of culminated my first 20 years in business. You take it from a crucible of fire, right? You're having to struggle. There's no cash. And then all of a sudden, there's an abundance of capital. But along the way, you learned a lot of great lessons, I would think, in terms of finding those little gems out there that nobody else wanted. I'd like to say... I spent nine months thinking about my first 20 years and what I learned. And I said, from what I learned, how can I design a business model that will provide growth, value, and liquidity? So I captured the tremendous successes, the tremendous challenges, and I designed how we could take our 20 million historic business, buy companies that created a balance of markets, product, and technology, and grow to 100 million. And I identified the companies, what I was good at in 1990, I felt, was fixing broken companies. And in the packaging industry, there were a lot of broken, challenged companies. So my first phase of my growth was looking for companies that experienced similar challenges to us, bringing my experiences to give those companies a future. The big word I would give to your listeners is the word balance. Never let your company be dependent upon any one market, any one technology. So 
I designed a robust business model from my traumatic up and down and public offering. I designed a business model, and then I went out and looked for companies that would actualize that. That business model that I thought would get us to 100 million got us to 3 billion today. And so that comes down to that, I guess, almost, and I hate to use a, a finance term, but like a portfolio theory where you're in a variety of different markets so that, as you say, you're not dependent on any one customer or any one particular market space and it sort of makes you more resilient. And, you know, you and I have spoken a lot about having a vision for the future and making sure that that's attainable, realistic and building trust with your employees to say, okay, here's my vision, and I really feel good about that vision, and we can accomplish it. Well, I would say the number one responsibility of every CEO or every organization is to give the people in your span of care a grounded sense of hope for the future. And to do that, you have to design a business model. Now, there's an old expression, you need to get the right people on the bus, which is about hiring talented people, get them in the organization. I have a different slant on that. I think you need to build a safe bus, which is your business model, okay? And then you need drivers who know where they're going and how to get there safely. And then anybody that gets on the bus is gonna feel safe and get to the destination together. So our responsibility as leaders is to make sure we have a robust business model. If you design a business model, drive it into the 08, 09 downturn or the coronavirus challenge and see how your business performs. General Electric crashed with Jack Welch's legendary business model that we studied, I studied in college, crashed, did not make it through the 08, 09 crisis. Our share price went up by 11% and we let nobody go in that environment. And in COVID, our share price is gonna go up 14% and we let nobody go in COVID. Our business model design has been through the most challenging economic environments you and I have ever seen in our life. We designed a robust business model that does not depend upon any one customer, any one market, any one technology. One of the things that I think about when I listen to you is that, and this is probably something that every good business leader should think about in terms of reflecting, reflection on both what the successes were and what the failures were and what lessons you can learn from both. And we'll get into it a little bit now is talk about your principles of leadership and how that came about. And you started to see those successes and you reflected on that and you put together a working group. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit. We realize That is our primary responsibility to our people. When we invite people into the organization, we ought to be able to look at them and say, join us, you're safe with us, okay? Because too many people, I just have seen too many businesses destroyed, too many people hurt. Harvard did a case study on our company, and I was teaching it up at Harvard with Jen Rifkin, the chair of the MBA program, and they said, is Barry Wimler's success because of its culture or its strategy? And there was a vibrant discussion among these 180 executives from around the country, and they decided our culture was the key to our success. And I said, that's wrong. The foundation of our success is a robust business model. And it's like Ferrari building an engine. That engine is no better than the fuel you put in it. If you don't put the right fuel in that Ferrari engine, it will not perform to its potential. We built a Ferrari engine in a business model, and then we put our culture as the premium fuel so that engine can realize its potential. So it's a rich combination of a good business strategy and a good culture to actualize that strategy. But the point you were making, John, which is critical, I constantly ask people, where are you going, okay? And why do you wanna go there? And when you get there, why will you have taken your people to a better place? We're constantly asking our team members to pause, think, reflect, learn, and adjust. 
constantly because that is our responsibility to the people. They look to us so they can build a family, so they can build their financial position, so they can have a sense of comfort and do their job without worrying about being downsized, right-sized, laid off, because we failed to design a business model that could withstand the economic challenges that we experience over time. And then again, the other piece is we run it conservatively, even though we've done 115 acquisitions. We have never got up over our ski tips. So our team bought into that, we grew, and we've stayed true to those disciplines, which is very important for leaders, whether you're the president of the United States or the president of the company or the head of an organization. I want to talk a little bit about vision, because one of the things that I hear from you is, especially as you go out and you've done, I think you said, what was the number, 115 or 105 acquisitions? 115 acquisitions. 115 acquisitions. All right. Now, that is a monumental task for anybody and to get those people on board, you better have a compelling vision to get people to follow, to get people to understand the direction you want to be heading so that not only do they see the end result, they see themselves in that. So in terms of putting this together, how do you put your vision together for the company? Well, I would say to you probably for the first from 1990 to probably 2005, whatever, most of our acquisitions were struggling companies. Mm -hmm. So we were the guardian angel that came in and bought those. We have saved more businesses than you can imagine. I never buy a company that I don't feel confident I can make better because most people buy you multiple of EBITDA, you know, strategic, and they look at the product. But I was interviewed by these organizational development professors at Washington University for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And after an hour and a half, they said, you're the first CEO I've ever talked to that never talked about their product. Hmm. And I said, I've been talking about a product for the last hour and a half. It's our people. Okay? It's our people. I will not go to my grave proud of the capital equipment we build. I'll go to my grave proud of the people who designed and built that equipment. My key to success is I'm a relatively simple person. And I have a good sense of common sense, and I see value where other people don't see it. Many of the companies we buy, like in the early 80s, were companies nobody else wanted. Most people want companies with high EBITDA, high growth. I just said, I want companies that I think I can fix and make better. And so I focused on those. I never got carried away. I didn't get over my ski tips and price. I love the headline you use on your guiding principles of leadership, and that is, we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. And most companies, when they look at a core purpose, they don't define their organization that way. They usually define it by the product or they want to be the best in service. Right. But that's not the way you measure success, is it? You know what's wrong with our country? We measure success in the wrong way. We measure it as money, power, and position. It doesn't matter you get it. We're not going to measure success that way. We're going to measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. It just popped out of me. when I said, we measure not just our shareholders, but our team members, our communities, our customers, our suppliers, the language is, you know, we need to beat up our suppliers. Who wants to deal with somebody who's going to beat them up? So we changed everything by that expression, and right. it became our golden rule. We manage success by the way we touch the lives of people. It's interesting, and I was struck by that because, at, first off, it was developed so long ago, and most recently, I believe it was last year, there was uh, several CEOs of major corporations got together and talked about changing the only focus of the CEO from generating value for shareholders to creating a more purpose-driven organization, to have a higher purpose right, right. other than just shareholder more, value. It was the CEO roundtable that came out with that statement. Mm -hmm. And I know a number of 
the members of the CEO roundtable, and they're all really good people. Mm-hmm. They're just stuck in a pretty bad system because the only way you get rewarded in our society as a CEO, you could be the nicest guy in the world and treat your people with respect, but if you don't get that share price up, which is the board's responsibility to the shareholders, mm-hmm. they're going to find another CEO, okay? It is hard for boards to get their mind off the traditional focus on the market cap, the multiple, the industry comparables, because you're being analyzed every day from every angle. So while they said a beautiful statement, they're stuck in a bad system because all these analysts want, all these investors want is a return on their investment now, okay? They don't really care whether you treat your people well. So the very people that give you the right to be in business, which is your investors, it's okay if you're nice to people as long as I get my return. But yeah. to some extent, you know, you've proven that you can do both. You can have a, right, right, right. a very good return on investment and still treat your people well. We actually did a study compared to Berkshire Hathaway because I think Warren Buffett's had an amazing run. And I said to my team, we began measuring our share price in 1997. How have we done to our shareholders compared to Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, because he's kind of a legendary comparison. Since 1997, our share price has grown a compound 14% a year since 1997, and Warren has grown 9.6%. <laughs> so what we're trying to show, which is logical, but not intuitive, that you can create human value and economic value. But we have a country where 88% of the people feel they work for a company that doesn't care about them. Three out of four people are disengaged. 65% would give up a salary increase if they could fire their boss, okay? And 55% would trust a stranger before their boss. These are not debated statistics. So when we look at people whose lives are entrusted to us in our organization, are they sharing their gifts with us fully? No, they're doing what they need to do because they don't feel valued, they feel used for somebody else's success. Leadership means the stewardship of the lives entrusted to you. Your focus is the people, and you've got to create economic value and human value in harmony. It only makes sense if people feel value, they're going to give you their gifts. One of the things that you talk about in your book was really just getting people to rise to their full potential. And when you help people rise to that level, they reward you with everything as being more productive, more engaged, all the things, those financial metrics that you want to measure simply by helping them get to their full potential. Right. How do you create the technology of your people and the potential of your technology? How do you bring those together? Right. We need to look at these organizations as teams with everybody working together because the number one source of happiness in the world, according to Gallup, is not wealth or health. It is a good job doing meaningful work with people you enjoy. Business could be the most powerful force for good in the world if we simply shifted our focus to the people we have the privilege of leading, which means you need a good business model and the fuel, which is a good culture to realize the potential of that business. As we're talking to people who are not only within existing organizations, but entrepreneurs, new leaders, it's not only the idea of coming up with these leadership principles, but enacting them and then enculturating them into the organization. And so what would you say was some of the ideas that you and your team came up with to really solidify these principles within the culture of your organization? Good question. I got to go back to 15 years ago. We couldn't ask managers to become leaders. We had to teach them. And we developed from a clean sheet of paper, how do we teach people to become leaders instead of managers? And the three things that are foundation to what we teach in our university today is the most powerful thing is empathetic listening. 
greatest act of leadership is not talking. It is empathetic listening and understanding the people who you have the privilege of leading and validating their worth by listening to them. The second is recognition and celebration. We spend a lot of time in our company looking for people doing good things, raising them up and saying thank you. And that's a skill to do that with timely, proportionate, and thoughtful to each individual. And finally, we have a class called Culture of Service, seizing the opportunity to serve others. Not seeing this as your career, your job, but seeing yourself as part of a team. And by you doing your role well, you are helping that person next to you have a better career. Because if we each play our position well, and we have a good strategy, we have a good future. Then people can go home at night feeling valued. Because one of the things we learned when we started teaching these classes, 95% of the feedback from our people is how it affected their marriage and their relationship with their children. Because these principles, more than anything, didn't come from my business education. They came from Cynthia and I raising our six kids. So, Bob, I hear you in terms of educating your leadership team and getting people to that transition and to understand the difference between managing and leading. But it's all about consistency and constant regimen to make sure that these are our core values. This is our beliefs. And we need to stick by them because that also then empowers decision-making within an organization. So everybody knows, here are the ground rules. So if I need to make a decision, how would Bob do this? And I think that is so important. Our chief people officer looked at me and said, Bob, I love these principles. But Enron had great principles on the wall. They just didn't live them. And I said, I'm not going to put them on the wall. I'm going to put them in people's heads and hearts. And I took that challenge and I started flying around to all of our operations, sitting down with random groups of team members, plant, hourly, all groups of people, 20 to 30 people at a time and saying, we have created these guiding principles. This is what we believe in. How are we doing? How can you help me understand? Let's show people we trust them. So our actions are critically important to validating our culture. And we started having these listening sessions all over the world. And people felt they could tell us where we were not living our values, and we made changes. And it meant a lot to people. And, and, and so that was how we took it from the wall and put it in people's heads and hearts. So remember, John, before the pandemic, before the kind of the social unrest, when we had lowest unemployment in 50 years, vibrant stock market, right. we had one of the highest levels of anxiety and depression we've ever had because people don't feel valued. They feel used for somebody else's gain. Yep. And I think that comes down to when we talked about it earlier about you know the way we measure success, right? And we think because right. it's with dollar signs as opposed to emotional security, compassion for each other. Yeah, we use the word care because sometimes love is a pretty powerful word for me. We just said, like we care for our kids, care for our team members. And the greatest act of caring is to be present and listen to them, not talk to them. I honestly thought the way I was taught in business, you get a good education, you get a good job, you get a good experience, you become a manager, and you can tell people what to do. And my early part of my career, I spent a lot of time telling people what to do, and they did it. And I felt good. They came to me for advice. I'd tell them what to do, and they'd do it. And it made me feel good. And I realized that's not the way to raise kids. That's not to raise people. And say, what do you think we should do? And so engaging people, giving them responsible freedom, giving them the feeling that their thoughts matter, listening to them, who simply want to know that who they are and what they do matters. And when you give them that gift, you give them the greatest gift. You send them home and they treat their spouses and their kids better and they behave. The unrest we have in this country, the civil disorder we have in this country, the foundation is people don't feel valued. They don't feel heard. 
and we could solve it tomorrow. I think this is so well put. And Bob, thank you for your time. I have a couple of questions. Number one is, what one word describes who you are? I would say creative. Huh. Okay. I'm not very smart, but I am creative. Our leadership model is creative. Our culture is creative. And what I'd say to you, John, remember, we've had top people from McKinsey all over the world, Harvard, Stanford, Kellogg. We've had people visit our operations, talk to our people, and every single one of these people say, I've never seen anything like it. We just have to look at the people as our product and make sure we give them a safe, secure future where they can grow and return home each night and be good spouses and good citizens in our country. This is the other question I had was, final advice for young entrepreneurs and leaders out there. I'd say, from a strategy standpoint, there's no relationship between what something costs and what it's worth. I could talk for 20 hours on that, but in a short sentence, that is what I teach MBA students. There's no relationship between what something costs and what it's worth. Mm. And people, leaders need to have the courage and the skill to care for the people you invite in your journey, because that is how your children, my children, and our generational children are going to have a chance to be who they're intended to be and valued for whatever that is. Bob, very well put. Thanks so much. Thank you, John. We heard Bob describe strategy as the engine you design and culture as the fuel to propel it forward. The convergence of a sound strategy with a caring and supportive culture is vital to build and sustain a successful business. During the interview, Bob provided key insights into the underpinnings of his leadership philosophy. This included empathetic listening, listening and understanding the people who you have the privilege of leading, recognition and celebration, spend time looking for people doing good things and celebrate their accomplishments, create a sound and compelling vision for the future, one that transcends just profit to include how your employees can realize their full potential. Of course, put your words into action, live the values you espouse, seize the opportunity to serve others, Helping that person next to you have a better career. If we each play our position well and have a good strategy, together we'll have a promising future. And of course, the importance of measuring success by the way we touch the lives of people. It is about applying a metric beyond net income and earnings per share that truly expresses Bob's leadership approach. We thank him for his insights and valuable lessons. This podcast is executive produced by John Rebecki, and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. The Director of Professional Enrichment and producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohn. Our marketing and social media strategist is Petra Shantaraga. Our audio editor and mixer is Brian Falk from Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Constance Talatia and Paulina Lamanier for all their support. Until next time.